0: This evening I'd like to speak about finding peace within stillness and movement. And the title for the retreat which we've been undertaking together of stillness and movement is somewhat the inspiration for the talk. And at a sort of very obvious level perhaps we observe that our day is a A movement, or a series of transitions between periods of stillness, periods of movement. And the sitting meditation, certainly so far as our body is concerned, for the most part involves being still. During the walking meditation, for the most part we're in motion. And during the yoga, there's a combination of both. Moving into a posture, and then staying in it. Then moving out. And this, this movement, or this series of transitions between stillness and movement, has a perhaps deeper and more important dimension which I'd like to explore, and it's really the inner dimension of the stillness and the movement of our heart, the stillness and the movement of our mind, our spirit and our entire being. Sometimes we could perhaps describe the whole movement of our life as being the whole direction of our life, as being a search for stillness, a search for peace. That's when we we say or speak about seeking happiness, seeking satisfaction or the end of suffering, however we might describe that to ourselves. What we're really looking for is peace. And the Buddha once said of these teachings that this this path is the path of happiness which leads to the highest happiness and the highest happiness is peace. This is an important message for us to hear that the direction of this practice and these teachings is towards happiness and the ripening and fullness of happiness is in fact the experience of peace, the understanding and the embodiment of peace. And yet what we find is that we're rather strongly attracted towards movement, towards the experiences which flow through our day, through our mind and body and through our life. We see the experiences of those around us, we see the The whole of life, in fact, engaged in a continuous process of change. One thing arising, changing into another. One thing that is here for a moment and then gone, and then something else takes its place. This could be described as the experience of movement, of being in touch with the flow of life, the transitory nature of it, the ongoing, ever-changing flux of things with which we are in contact. And perhaps we begin our practice seeking peace in somehow trying to subdue or control the movement, to control the experiences, to somehow get them to be as we would wish them to be. And yet we, we discover as we look more deeply that in fact we cannot bring it to a halt. We see that it goes on and that in fact our relationship to the movement, to the activities, to the experience that where we struggle with it, seeking to control it, seeking to change it or stop it the movements of desire, of aversion and of delusion and confusion that these movements, they really don't serve us. We see that when we identify with them, we believe that they serve us and we follow them along it leads to pain and suffering. And equally we notice that when we struggle with them, when we fight with them, as we've been speaking of here in these days, when we fight with them equally, it doesn't serve us. And we we have to find the capacity in our hearts and minds to be with them, to just let them be. And it's rather interesting and perhaps ironic I would say that while at one level we have so much difficulty with the Experiences, the content of our life, the story and the events that make up our history and our moment-to-moment experience. And we perhaps wish for it all to stop or to at least give us a, a brief break. And how many people haven't sat in the hall just wishing that all those thoughts would stop, wishing that just for a moment there could be peace, there could be stillness, that it could just be the absence of all of that stuff going on that seems to have been going on for our entire existence. And yet, often what we find when we actually contact, when we connect with that that moment or that place of stillness, that moment or that place where in fact there isn't so much going on, where there isn't so much activity and busyness, what we actually find in that moment often is that it's rather difficult to remain there, that we're actually rather uncomfortable. Perhaps it's rather scary. Or perhaps it's just not entertaining enough for us. And we see how easily we launch ourselves again into the busyness of the movements of our mind and heart. The thinking and the dwelling, the fantasies, the worrying and the anxieties, the seeking to have a problem to fix that goes on and on. And while at one level we think that we really don't want that to be happening, we see that in its absence we're not very comfortable. We start to perhaps realize that the activity and the the results which we seek to bring about through that activity, whether it be the activity of our thinking or the activity of our speech or our actions of body. We see that through that activity we, we establish for ourselves a sense of our role, a sense of our place. We seek personal feedback as a response to that activity. And all of this, the activity, the results, the roles that we inhabit through that activity, and the feedback we get from it, all of this contributes to a a sense that we are seeking from others or from our experience to somehow find a way to feel okay about ourselves. That we use all that experience, all the thoughts, all the actions, all the busyness and all the doing. We're actually very attached to it in one way because we use it to tell us who we are. That without it we wouldn't know who we are. And in that moment where it all stops sometimes what we are confronted with is that we don't know who we are. And immediately we reach out. We engage in another activity, another thing to do, to be, to become. Because we're not able to be with that stillness, with that absence of something reflecting back to us who we are. And yet all those reflections back to us are constantly changing, constantly varying from one thing to another. And there's no no security to be found in that reflection. And consequently we're always looking for another one, a better one, the right one. We we experience a restlessness in the moments of stillness often. A restlessness restlessness that's really based on a sense of separation or a sense of, of something having been lost something being incomplete or wrong, something needed, that we don't quite know what it is. We just aren't quite comfortable with nothing. We're not quite comfortable in that stillness, despite longing for it at one level. And so we go looking, looking outside of ourselves, looking around us, looking into activities, looking everywhere, except where we are, looking to the future and the past for the solution or the answer. And yet in all that process we're moving away from where we are. We're somehow caught up in the, I would say rather unfortunate belief that peace and happiness will be found somewhere else, someplace other than where we are. And that somehow we have to get to that place or get that thing or change that part of what we call ourselves in order to arrive there. And we set up really quite a major project for ourselves in our life to try and get to some place which we are not, but which we believe when we get there will offer us satisfaction, will offer us peace and ease and the the sense of the sense of belonging and wholeness that we seek for. It's interesting to notice just how much fascination that we observe in our minds and around us in the world. Fascination for activity, fascination for busyness, for doing, for, for the next thing. And we can see it in the, in the pressure that we experience in our life and our work to always get finished what we are doing in order to do the next thing, in order to do the next thing. We're never able to really rest in doing what we're doing now because we always have to get to the next thing. I had a rather sweet encounter with a delightful young child who is um, the daughter of one of the women who work at the Insight Meditation Society Roger referred to yesterday in the talk and um, where I was living for a couple of years recently. And this little girl who is, I think, three, Kiko, her name, had a delightful habit of asking, what is next? What is next? And whenever she was doing something, she'd always come up and say, What is next? Mm-hmm. This was bright eyes and full of interest and joy. And there was something quite delightful about it, but I don't know what it was in me that somehow I thought, Well, this is interesting. It's such, so, such an honest, innocent expression of something that perhaps we're all doing most of the time in more sort of covered ways. And so I just asked her, What is now? <laughs> And her first response was, nothing. <laughs> it was really interesting. Her first response was, nothing. I said, are you sure? you sure there's nothing? She said, oh no, you know, I'm doing this. And she said, what she, in a way she just recognised what she was doing now. So it's just very interesting how often our, our first response to what is now is that it's not significant. It's not anywhere quite as interesting or as compelling as what is next. And that keeps us off balance, leaning forward, reaching out towards something. And so what is now? What is now? Perhaps this question is what we ask. The simple returning of our attention to the present moment in a very real way. We're expressing through our willingness to come back. We're expressing our interest in answering or discovering what that question is pointing to. What is now? What is here? And being interested in that, above and beyond what is somewhere else or at some other time. So it's useful to examine the movements that we see within us, to examine that process that can seem to be so attractive, so compelling and mesmerizing at times, that we're drawn into it. We're drawn into it by some promise of something it offers to us. And yet, to look look at our experience perhaps from a different perspective, we tend to focus, because it seems to offer something to us, we tend to focus on that which is always moving. We tend to focus on all the experiences that are going by, trying to get them to stop, trying to actually bring them into some form of order out of the chaos in which they emerge, trying to actually get them organised to be in the way we want them to be. Which, if we could do, we would hope for it then to stay that way, but of course it doesn't. And we've seen that here, we finally we finally manage to attend three breaths in a row, and we're thinking, Ah, now, now now, I'll be really present, now I'll be really conscious. And we're steady and still, and then in the next moment, a sound occurs, and we're off in another direction, and we're wishing, well, I thought I had it together. What happened? We see that it doesn't stay there. And so, to look, rather than to try and make things which are moving, try and invest so much importance in all those things that are coming and going, which we're so fascinated with, we can perhaps look at our experience, look at our life with another interest to see what's already there, that perhaps is still, that is not moving, to see what is actually the constant factor in our life, what what is always to be found in each moment. And we might recognize, acknowledge perhaps that there's two aspects to many experiences. And just perhaps take the um, the weather such a favourite topic of conversation in this country I don't know why but um, we look and we see the weather the clouds and the, the rain passing through and the occasional gaps between and we see that there's this movement occurring above us this movement of the weather and how much we talk about the weather the clouds are here the clouds have gone the sun is coming maybe it's not and all of that And yet, in all the time that the weather is moving and we're so fascinated with watching the clouds and all of that, the sky just sits there, unmoving. The sky is always there for that. And the clouds just move across it. The sky is untouched by them. And yet so easily, we don't really attend to that. We don't really notice that. We don't allow ourselves to listen to the inkling of what that might suggest to us about our life. Similarly, in watching a movie, have you ever had that experience where you're just totally engrossed in the story and you see it unfolding in front of you, and really, it's happening. You know, we really believe that it's real in that moment. You know, we're worried for the characters. We almost want to say, "Look out!" when the bad guy turns up behind the hero, or you know, don't go out with that guy to the heroine who's about to go out with some obvious sleazeball. You know, we. We feel it, like it's real. And then perhaps the projector breaks down and it's a blank screen. And it wasn't happening at all. Or the movie just comes to an end and suddenly it's gone. And what seems so real? We're entranced by the moving pictures and colours and the story they're telling us. And yet what's been there all along was just a blank screen with colours on it. And yet we, we don't notice that screen very easily. We don't notice that constant element very easily. We really have to have our attention drawn to it. So perhaps we could speak about stillness as being the <coughs> the potential for movement. That in the absence of movement its potential is there. It's possible for things to happen only because there is stillness beforehand. And for me silence and sounds express this very well, which are really very similar in their relationship, that silence is really this constant, all-enveloping element, in a way we could say. And sound is really just a movement of energy within that element. It's really just silence with form and shape. And if you listen to the bell when it rings, there's something quite sweet about the fact that although it's noise, it's a sound. It's just sort of like the silence, but amplified. Because it doesn't have a particular form to it. It may have a note, but there's a way in which it's almost like the silence that's been amplified. So we're aware of it. And when it fades away into nothing, we're just left with the silence. And I think it's no accident that bells are often used in situations where spiritual practice is engaged in. Because they have a way in which they can just connect us with that sense of the, the form the sound that's revealed through the emptiness, through the silence in each moment so we we might just look at our life and look at each moment with a a sense of interest to see well, having understood, having discovered the reality of change having seen that that, no doubt, is part of our experience and we need to live in accordance with it when dealing with the things of our life and the day-to-day events and experiences Seeing and acknowledging that, and yet not stopping there, being willing to look a little deeper, and to see what we might sense in that looking. I once had a rather, a rather wonderful experience. I was in, um, in India, sitting a retreat in Buddhagaya in Bihar, which is the, um, the little village now existing where the Buddha once sat under the Bodhi tree and realised the, um, the complete freedom of human beings, one and all, and expressed this in his teachings which invite others to realise that too. And in this this place where many monasteries, Buddhist monasteries are, there's an annual retreat that occurs. And I'd been to this retreat the year before, as others here in this room have in fact attended that retreat in different years. And I'd been fascinated, I'd been enthralled by these beautiful little puppies who'd played and gambled and run as we walked silently and steadily and chewed on our ankles or ran away with our shoes while we were in the meditation hall. And I just delighted in their company. and lying down for a nap in the sun after lunch they would come and lick your plate or your face. And they just touched me very deeply. And I was back there again the second year, the next year, and I realised I was just enjoying these puppies. And at one point about I don't know a week maybe two weeks into the retreat I can't remember I just suddenly realized that all along I thought that these were the same puppies that I'd been playing with last year because <laughs> they were just the same puppies they really felt like it and I just suddenly realized, oh just a moment all those puppies are this big now and these ones are just this big they're new and it just suddenly touched me there's a sense of how the puppies come and go and yet puppy nature is just the same really it, it, that sense of the, the changing individuality of these little creatures of course they've grown up many of them will have died in that year not many of them survived but, but there were more fresh new little bundles of energy and sort of enthusiasm and that sense of the nature of them had, had, had gone unchanged and it, it spoke to me very deeply and profoundly of the, the sense of the, the nature of things which doesn't change which we can recognise through the different forms through the different experiences which do change so that we acknowledge that yes, these puppies come and go and there's sadness and pain in their life, and equally as in our life. and yet there's something that continues there's something that flows through it there's a rather mysterious and actually joyful thread that is revealed there as well and so in our practice equally as we are interested to understand the nature and the reality of change, we equally, and perhaps in some ways more importantly, more profoundly, are invited to understand the reality and the truth of that which is unchanging, which is the nature of things underpinning all all the possibilities that occur, all the possibilities that reveal themselves to us in the thoughts and the feelings in our life, the life of the puppies and the flowers that grow and die and yet next year from above <coughs> grow the same flower again every time every time it comes back perennial to see that as we as we're not so fascinated by the particulars if we can let go of trying to sort of fix the particulars or get them all right or get what we want from them somehow if we actually just start to watch the whole process, sort of stepping back a little bit, just stepping back and just observing, resting in that place of observing and seeing the whole flow of experience, then there's something quite, quite profound that can touch us. I'd just like to read a passage from the book Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. And Siddhartha had been, this is a, a story... He'd been going through a difficult period in his life and had just come, in a way, to the river to throw himself in. But he just thought he'd stop and listen for a moment first. And it says, Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening. He had often heard all this before, all those numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices. The merry voice from the weeping one. The childish voice from the manly one. They all belonged to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise the cry of the indignant and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. All the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, the sorrows, the pleasures, the good, the evil, all of them together with the world, all of them together with the stream of events and the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or the laughter, did not bind himself to any one particular voice and absorb it into himself, but heard them all, the unity, then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, perfection. That sense of just sitting and listening to the river. To see what that means in practice is to to really sit and listen to the river of our life. Listen to all the voices. Some of them we may know well and have had plenty of dialogues with. Others may be new and surprising to us. The happy and the sad. Just to listen to them all without having to identify with any one of them. Without having to take any one of them to be who we are. To be the truth the deepest truth of our existence. Do not define ourselves nor limit ourselves in any way by the experiences which flow through us. Resting more in a place of of life flowing through us rather than ourselves going through life. And we start to sense a stillness there in that resting, in that resting in the observing of, in the resting of the awareness. We start to notice a stillness despite all the movement despite the busyness of our life, that hasn't stopped. But there's something there that we sense. Perhaps we've been touched by it sitting in this room in some of the rather beautifully quiet and still moments together here. Achan Cha once said of practice and I think it's perhaps quite a lovely description of our practice. Ajahn Chah was a, a well-known and greatly loved um, Thai meditation master who died a few years ago and um, who is the uh, teacher of the um, many of the, the nuns and the monks who have established the monasteries in England and around the west of um, Amravati and many others and uh, doing great work and serving the Dharma, living the Dharma. And Ajahn Chah said once, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful creatures come and go but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So that sense of being mindful and letting things take their natural course. Being there, observing, but not struggling with what's happening. Allowing your mind to become still. And yet seeing that in that stillness it will be visited by many, many different things. Some ordinary, some perhaps extraordinary. But not making too much out of the extraordinary. Not dismissing the ordinary. Just being there for it all. And there's a A stillness that can come, that can touch us. And this is the happiness of the Buddha. So our practice invites us to to actually understand and to enter into, to realise that stillness which embraces all movement which is not in conflict with movement, nor yet the opposite of movement, nor yet is it the same as movement. We need to really let go of our preoccupation, our grasping after and our pursuing of all the things of our life. The degree to which we can let that go, to that degree we're able to rest, perhaps almost to sit back, as one might watch a film Knowing quite consciously that one is watching a film, and it's all going on, but there's a there's a recognition of the fact that this mysterious awareness that is present with us in every moment is revealing to us the unfoldment of our life and the unfoldment of life itself. We see that we so tend to focusing, we're so used to focusing on the appearance of things using what we see, hear, smell, touch and taste and what we think to tell us what is the truth. And yet, while we need to trust those experiences to see that, in fact, while they're all in flux, while they're all changing and coming and going, they in themselves cannot ultimately reveal to us the profoundest wisdom and the deepest truth that we need to actually let go of them and perhaps see even deeper than that. And of course we're not talking see- seeing with our eye, we're not talking about seeing with our senses, but something something in us which can recognise because it is of that nature, of that which it does recognise. Something in us of awareness, of understanding. Kala Rinpoche, a Tibetan master and teacher, said, I think very profoundly and accurately you live in illusion and the appearance of things there is a reality you are that reality when you understand this you will see that you are nothing and being nothing you are everything that is all Now, what can he mean by this? What could this mean for us? Living in illusion and the appearance of things, it's our tendency to believe the truth of the stories we tell ourselves, the in the ultimate reality of this flow of changing experience, of giving it ultimate importance in our life, when in fact it's just flowing past us, and to to acknowledge that there is a reality which is what we are, not in a personal sense, not me, not something we own or that we can possess, but that we are not apart from or removed from in any way. And understanding this, the recognition that we are nothing, that we are not any of the things that we contact, that we're not the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, we're not the body, we're not all the thoughts, we're not all the emotions. Those are all the things and we are nothing. No thing. And yet, being no thing, you are everything. Because when you're not identified with some, because the moment you say you are one thing, that means you're not another. And there's a separation that's created where we identify ourselves with some things and not with others. And that very separation we lose touch with the sense of our participation in everything. Our participation in a, I guess what could be called a divine reality, a divine element in life. And yet, that is all. In the last words he said, that is all. It's rather ordinary. It's not something removed or distant from us or particularly esoteric. In its discovery one realises is just so ordinary. When we start to sense, perhaps we don't quite know what this refers to. That's okay. Just to leave oneself open to that possibility. We can't make anything happen in this realm of discovery. It's really something akin to grace, to be touched in that way, to understand this truth. And yet, we start to to sense it and perhaps from another way. Because there's a way in which we start to sense our our non-separateness, our relatedness to all things. We start to see how the common experience of our life is not different from the common experience of other people's lives. That our human existence has many parallels to the existence of other creatures. The, the fundamental elements of being born, living for a while and then dying. These, perhaps most primary fundamental events of our life, are shared by all living things. We start to sense our connection, our relationship, how we couldn't live without the support of so many different creatures, so many different people. That so we we start to feel in that sense of unity, in that sense of connectedness, that that comes from not being so preoccupied with getting this getting away from that when we're not so preoccupied with that we start to sense that connectedness we start to sense that there's a there's a kindness there within us that doesn't have a limit to it that hasn't got boundaries upon it although we may experience at times that it does we start to sense its potential perhaps it's unmanifest but it's there and that 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 potential, that that comes from our sense of unity. It's really, it comes as an expression of compassion and kindness. That realizing that we're not actually separate from others, so so-called others. That it's not really me over here and you over there, but actually life in which we are participating, co-participant. When we realize that, it's really the most natural thing in the world to feel caring and kindness for another and equally for ourselves. And when we find pain and suffering in the world, when we meet it in our own life, when we meet it in the lives of those around us, quite naturally and effortlessly, through that understanding of our connection and our relatedness, we respond, wishing to bring healing, wishing to bring relief from pain. And we don't think like, I'm doing anything, and it's not that we're being particularly good today. It's really just, as ordinary and natural as when when our foot hurts and our hand just comes down to rub it gently if it aches or if it's sore or cold and our hand doesn't have any idea that it's doing the foot a favour it's not like you know we're being it's like I've got this really compassionate hand and here it is sort of you know sort of being the Mother Teresa of sort of right arms it's just it just happens and it's I mean, we speak about hand and we speak about foot and, of course, the hand does different things than the foot. But where's the separation? If we look at the body, just the simple image, where's the line that one ends and the other begins? It's not there, except in our thinking, except in our language, in our description. And yet, ask anyone if the hand and the foot are the same thing. They'll say, of course they're not. Because they haven't really seen deeply enough. They haven't reflected on this. And yet, it's because the hand and the foot are really the same, of the same thing. And it's obvious when I point out that it's just one body. That the hand responds to the foot. And in the same way, when we understand our relatedness, when we understand our connectedness, we, re- we find the capacity within ourselves to respond with that kindness, with that caring. And it flows quite evenly and equally towards so-called other as towards so-called self. And we can still speak in those terms and with that language, but we start to understand in a way that perhaps we can't quite express that that's just a way of talking about it. That's just a way of thinking about it. And ultimately it's not the case, it's not the truth of it. (coughs) This process and this practice can really be seen as a journey. A journey of awakening. Awakening to what is true and real. And awakening to where we are right now. So this journey is a journey of coming home. It's not a journey of going somewhere else, but of coming home and understanding truly and deeply what that means. like to read a piece from T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartets I think this speaks rather beautifully of the nature of this journey We shall not cease from, expor- from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate when the last of the earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea quick now hear Always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. The unfoldment of our practice is really the unfoldment of our understanding of a deepening process of discovery of insight of awakening to the deepest truth of our life and in that awakening in that rather mysterious and mystical discovery of the indivisibility of life we we discover a natural freedom we discover a freedom that's really the birthright of all living beings, of ourselves and all others. And it's a a freedom that embraces the movement of our life, that embraces all the activity of the whole world and all the realms of existence, and yet is neither shaken nor impacted by it, yet not removed or distant from it. And we can't really conceive what this might mean for us but to really let go of that wish to conceive of it. And reflecting on T.S. Eliot's lines, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. To discover this complete simplicity, this freedom, we're asked to let go, to let go. And the more we're able to let go, the deeper the peace we find in our life if we're able to let go absolutely we discover absolute peace in a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well so can we sit quietly together for? one or two minutes